one time I went to the market to go and buy stuff for myself like um, foodstuffs and all that and when I entered the market and people realized who I was they started hooting at me hooting at me, insulting me why are you a man and you want to be like this, why are you disgracing us you are the people who have brought poverty to Ghana are, somebody even said that was the reason why his salary has reduced where I knew him from nowhere, you know, and it touched my heart, I'm like why are these people condemning me? What have I done? I stood in the market and I cried. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. As I type the framework for this podcast, I'm aware that southern England is having a bit of a heatwave, with temperatures in the low 30s Celsius. Be aware that not all of the UK is suffering the same issues. Last Friday, for instance, was a particularly good one, as half my Twitter and Instagram timeline melted on the hottest day of the year by far, while I woke up to a whole morning of heavy rain and temperatures that weren't even the hottest day of the week. 13 degrees in mid-June is not entirely summery, but I'd rather have that than 31. Just, you know, with less rain. The weekend was drier. A bit warmer too. I did park run for the first time in a while on Saturday, and while it felt pretty quick, and I always know if it's going to be a good run when I don't get lapped, it turns out the fastest finisher was a minute and a half slower than usual, so my time ended up being only slightly quicker than my average. That said, I'd be interested to know what it'd be like on a parkrun circuit that's, you know, flat. There's a new one started last month in Govan, about three miles away, and I walked around the circuit a couple of Sundays ago. It's not suitable for bare feet, being a bit too knobbly, but it'll be fine for the minimalist sandals, and I can easily get to Govan. There's a direct bus from where I live, though curiously it takes such a circuitous route that I'd actually be quicker to run there. Probably not a good idea before a parkrun, though. I've been doing something really boring of late. I've been plotting the local railway stations and seeing how many of them I've walked past because there's just so many. Like, there's ten within a mile of where I live, never mind the rest of the Glasgow metro area. While I'm quite fond of local transport, I'd say having ten railway stations within a mile is maybe just a tad excessive. I mean, at the other extreme though, Sheffield, which is a similar-sized city has less than 10 railway stations in total, although certainly the hills there don't help because it means you can't really put a railway line in. At the moment, though, there's industrial action on Scott Warrell on a regular basis, so the number of services currently operating is lower than usual. And I usually walk everywhere I need to do anyway. What else have I been doing? Oh, well, a couple of weeks ago I had an online interview with Asma Yunus from the online travel radio radio station. She's doing a weekly segment where she interviews travel bloggers, and I was one of the first she reached out to, so I feel quite honoured about that, to be honest. 
It was only supposed to be a 10-minute thing in the final broadcast, and I did say good luck to her editor, who had to distill almost an hour's worth of chat. I did warn her in advance that I talked a lot, though. But in the event, they kept nearly half an hour's worth of chat in. She did say I had a nice, soothing voice, too, so that's... I mean, I know many people have said that, but radio is her job. She does things on BBC Radio Manchester, for instance. So coming from her, that's pretty high praise. There's a link to the site in the show notes. It'll be Asmi Yunus's show Global Gossip on the 27th of June. My last podcast also got a rave review from one of my friends who said, and I quote, This episode is hilarious. I've been laughing out loud a lot, walking down the street, looking ridiculous. I mean, she then sent me four things I either got wrong or misremembered, including that bisup is made from the flowers of the hibiscus rather than the leaves, and that Switzerland, despite not being in the EU, is in EFTA and has bilateral trade agreements with the EU in addition, so there are no customs checks. Also, apparently, I have been to Père Lachaise one other time, in May 2018, with said friend, who shall remain nameless, but if you think it's obviously Laura, then I can't tell you that you're wrong. I have no recollection of this, and I honestly don't know why. This podcast will not be as hilarious. I mean, I can do my best, but it's going to be a bit serious, slightly morbid, and... Yeah, I think Laura switched off now to save for later. Hmm. It was Pride Month last month, that annual event where corporations brand everything with rainbows and pretend they've always committed themselves to the cause of queer liberation, when really it's just an excuse to profit from the pink pound. Even Disney seemed to be having a spat about it with the Florida state governor. It's one of those situations where I hope they both lose. Anyway, I'm discovering that Glasgow actually has an LGBTQIA plus scene, or at least there's a queer bookshop, primarily trans of all the acronym, but covers all bases, not very far from me in the Strathbungo area of Southside Glasgow. And I popped in there a couple of weeks ago. So many books, but also badges proper and old-school badges, some of which are modern recreations of the kind of badges I'd have seen at university. They even have a demisexual badge, helpfully described as an asexual badge that looks like an arrow, but still, at least it's there. The person running the shop gave me a list of several of the places in Glasgow I might want to make contact with, including a queer cafe in the city centre and an organisation that runs things both online and in person, like queer hiking a non-binary get-together, and all manner of Zooms. This, coupled with a couple of kinky board game groups, the overlap between kink and LGBTQIA+, is not a given, but there's certainly an overlap. And despite being a travel blogger, the most popular page on my website by far is the one talking about asexuality and kink. Make of that what you will. Means that if I could get my social anxiety in order, I might, might just be able to break a few chunks in my occasional loneliness up here. I'd have that problem wherever I lived, to be honest, though. I mean, well, I mean, I do have that problem. Like, I lived in Nottinghamshire for 15 years and know about four people, one of whom is only there because of me. And I met her online first anyway. And one of the other two is someone I know from online first as well. But that's not the purpose of this podcast. Rather, because it was Pride Month... I wanted to talk about things related to the LGBTQIA community. But while I've previously talked about my personal experience of queerity, this time I wanted to talk a bit about how things are in the rest of the world. It was prompted because I follow a couple of people heavily involved in the community in Ghana, and I figured the situation of the Ghana rainbow scene wasn't something my audience would know a lot about. And then I wondered, well, 
one of the countries would be interesting to match with it for balance. Some of this pod is positive. Much of this pod is negative. But things are getting better, I promise. Unless you're a turf. In which case, you can suck my... toes. I'm going to start this pod in West Africa, and specifically in Ghana. Now, I know many countries in Africa aren't great for the LGBTQIA community, mostly because of colonial religious viewpoints being imposed during the Victorian era and, unlike in much of the UK, staying put at that level rather than being softened over the time. One of the worst is Uganda, where they often flirt with the death penalty for overt homosexuality. On the one hand, Ghana, and, for the record, nearby Nigeria, isn't quite that bad. But that's as far as the good news goes. In fact, the punishment for homosexuality is three years in jail. Homosexuality itself has been effectively banned in Ghana since 1861, and this was reaffirmed within a couple of years after independence. The rule specifically bans, quote, unnatural carnal knowledge, unquote, but many of the things this might also cover are effectively ignored. Tellingly, the same article in question specifically also bans bestiality, telling you exactly what they thought of gay sex. This is a reflection of society in general, which has a very negative view on, well, pretty much the whole of queer culture. A survey in 2021 by ACILA, A-C-I-L-A, the African Centre for International Law and Accountability, revealed that not only were over 80% of Ghanaians as a whole opposed to homosexuality, the word used was normalisation, but we can take that to mean equality, but 87% were opposed to public meetings to even discuss queer issues. In addition, while pretty much everyone believes the police have a responsibility to crack down on what you might call mob justice, 20% of those surveyed said this responsibility does not apply to the queer community. That is to say, one in five people in Ghana believe queer people should be the victim of, shall we say, vigilantism, without any fear of punishment. Other stunning stats the survey revealed include that three-quarters of Ghanaians support politicians who spout anti-queer rhetoric, and just over a third actively support not just discrimination, but actual doxing, including sacking from jobs or expelling from educational establishments, purely on account of their sexuality or gender orientation. One such politician on an anti-queer crusade is Sam George, MP for Ningo Pram Pram, in the outskirts of Accra. He has a history of anti-LGBTQIA sentiment, having been accused of using false statistics from organisations like the Ghana AIDS Commission to create hatred for LGBT people, and lying about government funds going into healthcare for gay people, as highlighted by Twitter user at JustDarby in June 2022. But in late 2021, he proposed a law called the Family Values Bill. According to him, the existing legislation doesn't go nearly far enough to protect, quote, family values, unquote, because, you know, hardline religious conservatives are a bit paranoid and obsessed about these things. His proposal includes up to 10 years imprisonment for even promoting or distributing queer resources, including just simply being involved in any queer association. Making this podcast illegal in Ghana, you might want to think about that. A year in jail for public displays of affection between not just people of the same sex gender, but also with someone who cross-dresses, never mind someone who's got actually undergone actual transition. And potential forced gender surgery, 
on people who are defined as intersex, amongst other provisions. It's 36 pages long. Internally, the bill has a lot of support. Not just cross-party support within the political system. The only party to express opposition is the Liberal Party, which has no seats in Parliament anyway. But also amongst both the traditional kingdoms, which still hold a lot of influence in the country's vibe, one chief said he'd storm Parliament with 10,000 people to ensure the bill was passed. And not just the established Anglican Church, but also many of the other religions in the country. The majority of external commentary from international organisations to external religious bodies have been uniformly negative of the bill. But I guess they don't get a vote. To be honest, incidents over the last couple of years suggest society is not just ready for this bill, but that the bill will codify and legalise situations that already occur. For instance, in January 2021, Ghana's first LGBT community centre opened, run by a trans woman. It lasted less than two months before being closed by police, following a series of violent protests against and attacks on it. More recently, in late June 2022, 30 rainbow people were arrested by police after a house party in Accra. The party was attacked by robbers, but when the police arrived, the robbers explained the house was being used for an LGBT get-together and the police arrested them rather than the original robbers, on the grounds of a, uh, quote, unlawful assembly, unquote. There are suggestions that the arrests were, shall we say, not peaceful. In addition, some of the partygoers seem to have been there secretly, but the police informed their families not just of their arrest, but also for the reason for their arrest, and thereby effectively outing them. Their families responded by disowning them. Arrested and exiled from home, just because of who you are. This incident prompted a Twitter joke from Ghanaian musician and film director One Love the Kubalor vagabond in the Ghanaian language of Gar, who is one of the few people within Ghana to fight for LGBTQIA plus rights. He asked, what be the difference between police and armed robbers? To which Twitter user Echo Scorpion replied, police wear uniform. Also, in June 2022, to celebrate Pride Month, billboards were erected in Accra and Tamale with the phrase love, tolerance and acceptance. They did not last very long, being torn down by an angry mob. In both cities, the mob was encouraged by politicians, the one in Accra being the target of the same Sam George, who tweeted, so long as they mount these billboards, we would bring them down. While the one in Tamale was targeted by local MP Ibrahim Mutala Mohammed, who said pretty much the same thing. Any material that is pasted on my, any billboard within my jurisdiction, and it's from those people, will pull it down and burn it. Note that both say we. This isn't just rabble-rousing, this is actual direct action by the MPs themselves. Physical attacks are also common, and those committing them tend to assume the police will turn a blind eye. As we've already heard, they're not afraid to commit to the cause themselves. The media site Pink News reported in January 2022 of an attack in the coastal city of Tema, just east of Accra, by a group of people who attacked and stabbed a man walking home because they thought he was gay, without any proof or confirmation. He ended up in hospital with wounds that took over a month to heal. There are some beacons of light. For example, apart from one love mentioned earlier, there are occasional individuals who try their best to stand against the tide. Pink News in 2021 reported the intentions of the singer Angel Maxine, a trans woman, and her mother, Araba Forson. Angel has said the situation is so bad in Ghana that she's attempted suicide several times, and if the family values bill passes, 
she'll probably do so again. Her mother has stated that she's regularly attacked with tomatoes when she visits her daughter and said that she'll walk naked to Parliament in protest if the bill is passed. In a country that values traditional family values, it's rare to find a parent that stands by the child this much. There's also the artist and photographer in Kumasi, Vabeni Ilikem Fiatsi, who was interviewed by Reuters. She's another trans woman who, as much as she can, exhibits her work in galleries and safe spaces across the country. Her art focuses mainly on her own transition journey and she's vowed to continue living and working in Ghana regardless of whether the bill is passed or not, out of solidarity with those in similar situations who are unable to flee the country, even though both her art and her very existence are under threat from the bill. There are a couple of LGBT plus organisations in Ghana, including Rightify Ghana, which is an LGBTQIA plus rights group, and Silent Majority, who define themselves on their website as a community of Ghanaians standing in solidarity with queer and transgender Ghanaians everywhere. But with the best one in the world, it feels like less of a silent majority and much more of a, a last stand. There's no word on when this bill will be passed, but it feels well somewhat inevitable and even seen as something that most Ghanaians will be looking forward to. I found Ghana to be a great country to visit, but you might want to think if you should go there right now. Anyway, let's move on to somewhere with a few brighter rainbows, shall we? India's proving to have been a bit of a mixed bag of issues in the LGBTQIA plus community. As far as I can tell, anyway. There seems to be a political drive to implement more rights for the queer community, which isn't always matched by the will of the public opinion, kind of like the exact opposite of the situation in the UK. What certainly doesn't help is that India is a much more regional country than most. The average citizen of, say, Mizoram is much more different to the average citizen of Uttar Pradesh in terms of culture, background, lifestyle and even language than you'd expect from two places 1,600 kilometres apart, which is the approximate distance between, say, Moscow and Ekaterinburg in Sverdlovsk Oblast of Russia. And that said, while many commentators might point to a rural-urban divide, and a divide between contemporary and traditional lifestyles. A survey conducted internally at the Indian Institute of Technology's New Delhi site, 72% of respondents believed homosexuality and heterosexuality were as normal as each other, for instance. It's a lot more nuanced than that. There aren't too many surveys that assess the wider Indian public's opinion of issues like the queer community, but outside of specific technological and government circles, tacit approval appears to be relatively low. Pew Research did some surveys across the 2010s in various countries, around homosexuality in particular, and on the question, should homosexuality be accepted by society, 37% of Indians said yes, as compared with 14% in 2014. A report conducted in 2019 by Azim Premji University, which is a small private university in Bangalore that seems to specialise in economics and public policy, had a small section on the subject of same-sex relations and concluded that overall a little more than 50% rejected the notion that such relationships should be accepted and only just under 20% had a small or strong belief that they should. They drilled deeper into this though and found it was both highly regional. Uttar Pradesh registered a 36% agreement while in Mizoram this was less than 10% but it was also related in part to media exposure to queer culture or more specifically Individuals with greater media exposure, 
as in are exposed to things in a wider worldview rather than being centred on their own community and their attitudes, have a greater likelihood to accept same-sex relationships in society, 33% amongst those with high exposure as opposed to 10% in those with no exposure. What is interesting, though, is that it also works the other way. The survey has four levels of exposure, and only at the highest level, which is high exposure in the survey, does the proportion of those opposed to same-sex relationships go down. The vibe here very much seems to be greater exposure to queer lifestyles lead to greater acceptance of it, but just because you're exposed to it doesn't mean that you're destined to like it. There's also another strong inverse correlation between media exposure and opinion. Those with very low media exposure are far more likely to not really care about the subject in the first place. For those who perceive they have no exposure to media, for instance, almost 50% have no opinion. It's just over 10% in the segment who claim to have high exposure. Make of that what you will. Ipsos did a global pride survey in 2021 and came up with more positive figures, although it might be their survey respondents were more likely to be amongst those well-informed about global LGBTQIA plus trends and information uh, due to the nature of their respondents, especially as it seems to have been, in India at least, uh, an almost online survey. Anyway, they report that 17% of respondents were attracted to the same sex. The survey worded it as sex, either equally or exclusively, which was the highest of all countries surveyed. Australia was 16, the UK was 15, and Russia was at the bottom with four. As an aside, I did contemplate looking at Russia for this podcast, but I valued my mental health too much. In addition, 2% of respondents in India reported as being asexual, the second highest in the world after 3% Sweden. This probably needs a deeper survey to get to the bottom of. Other positive notes from this survey are that 21% of Indians surveyed have attended a Pride March, the same proportion as Australia, Mexico and South Africa, and of the country surveyed only behind Spain. Uh, 21% again of respondents have a relative, friend or work colleague who is bisexual, which is middling compared to the country surveyed, but interestingly the only country in the survey where bisexuality is more commonly known than homosexuality. The corresponding figures for the UK are 57% versus 28%, and the USA is very similar. And the 12% who know someone who is non-binary, gender non-conforming or gender fluid is amongst the highest in the world, behind only Canada, Australia, Peru, the USA, Chile and Sweden, and equal with the UK and Argentina. Uruguay was not surveyed. 18% have attended a same-sex wedding on a par with Netherlands. Netherlands and South Africa, and only behind Mexico, Argentina and Belgium. However, even this survey has limits. While 44% of those surveyed in India believe in same-sex marriages, which is high compared with the other surveys of the Indian population, it is one of the lowest countries of this particular survey. While far ahead of the likes of Poland and Russia, it's below the global average of 54%, and Netherlands has an active approval rating of 84%. Although, on a positive note, 56% of people say their opinions have changed over the last five years. Um, relating to other surveys, this has mostly been a positive change, but it still feels like there's a long way to go.
Finally, India ranks above average in many rhetorics relating to LGBT visibility, including having more LGBT representation in sports teams, films and advertising. And, interestingly, they are the only country in the entire survey to have a majority in favour of transgender athletes competing under the gender that they are, rather than the gender that they were born with. Uh, 52% of its support. Spain has 50%. The only other countries in the 40s are all in South America, are Argentina, Chile and Brazil. But, regardless, the proportions liking it are much lower than you might expect given central government's push for LGBTQIA plus equality. Same-sex marriage is not currently legal in India as a whole, although one member of parliament, Supriya Sule, introduced a private member's bill in April to change this. This is but the latest in a series of attempts to change the law. There have been several previous attempts in the last 10 years. While parliament itself lags behind, the legal profession plots its own course. For instance, in 2018, the Supreme Court effectively decriminalised homosexual sex by ruling that consensual homosexual sex was not covered by the Indian Penal Code. Then in 2021, a ruling by Justice N. Anand Venkatesh prohibited sexual conversion therapy, making India the first recognised Asian country and the second entity behind Taiwan to do so. What made this ruling particularly interesting is Justice Venkatesh himself went, underwent related counselling with a queer counsellor in order to fully understand and appreciate the concept of homosexuality. In 2020, the High Court of the State of Uttarakhand noted that, despite same-sex marriages being technically non-legally binding nor legally responsible, they would fall under the same banner as cohabitation and what we in the UK might refer to as common law relationships – giving them at least some legal protection under Indian law. And even as early as 2011, a court in the northern state of Haryana ruled that a same-sex marriage between two women was legally protected, despite the wishes of their families and local communities. One of the issues in India is, because there's a strong community spirit and family structure, and because there's a tendency for communities and families to uphold more traditional lifestyle values, as we heard earlier, the majority of people, especially in more rural areas, are minded to disfavour LGBTQIA plus culture, lifestyle and beliefs. And while not as notorious as in neighbouring Pakistan, so-called honour killings are used at least as a threat by communities unable to accept a queer relationship in the family. And this doesn't even happen in just rural areas. The Times of India reported that a gay couple in 2019 were forced to flee death threats from their homes in Basarat, a northern suburb of that not very small village of Kolkata. They were subject to firstly social pressure, then torture, and then a kangaroo court in lieu of counselling and told that a contract had been taken out on their lives. A study published in 2019 by the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, a twice-monthly report studying the treatment of victims and perpetrators in cases of domestic violence, rape, sexual assault and other related matters, noted that respondents believed strongly that being queer was a damage to honour, at an average of 4.2 out of 7, and that anti-gay honour abuse was approved of. Uh, about 3.5 out of 7, second only to Pakistan in both cases, although only a select group of countries and demographics were surveyed. Two other groups surveyed, British Asians and British Whites, gave lower average scores, but interestingly the British Asian group scored just below India in both, far above British Whites and even above Iran, suggesting that it's very much a cultural rather than a geographic tendency, and that while more muted, anything that India itself feels is replicated in the Indian diaspora, regardless of other cultural influences. 
In general, in India then, it seems that if you're gay, you're better off in the cities and in more middle class and government circles. It was ever thus. Also, it seems that culture is a very strong driver for anti-rainbow sentiment. And let's now fly to the other side of the world from India, to a place where, like Ghana, even the government provides little help for people like me. heard the name William Hernandez. It's not an uncommon name to be fair and a web search brings up an actor and TikTok star, a Cuban chess player and an artist from Portland, Oregon. This particular William Hernandez however is the director of an organisation in El Salvador called Asociación Entre Amigos, Between Friends. This organisation is the leading group in El Salvador that stands up for LGBTQIA rights, provides sex education information and highlights discriminations and human rights violations against queer people. The trouble is, this position makes him a regular target for death threats and intimidation. So much, in fact, that he's listed on Amnesty International as being someone that the rest of the world needs to be aware of and help out however we can. El Salvador is not a good place to be anything but a cishet male. This is a country, remember, that jails women for miscarriages. It's predominantly a modern cultural thing, stemming mainly from religion. Mm. Specifically the long-term Catholicism and upcoming evangelicalism, neither of which are particularly open to new cultural ideas, including equality and freedoms of lifestyle. Especially in the LGBT scene, which they hypocritically view as displaying signs of immorality. It being a country with a long history of both civil war and right-wing dictatorship hasn't helped, especially when funded by Republican USA presidents. Nicaragua, so beloved of Ronald Reagan, for instance, is just over there, and evidence of CIA activity in El Salvador is pretty clear. And of course, Reagan loved the gays. Loved them so much, he laughed at them. Often when they died. But this is not an American politics podcast. Go to NPR if you want those. Oddly, same-sex sexual activity has been legal since 1822. However, this is something enshrined in law as opposed to everyday practice. It's not illegal per se, but it's best not to tell anyone you're doing it. Safe-sex relationships are not protected by domestic violence laws, nor are they allowed to adopt children. And while there have been recent attempts to legalise same-sex marriage, these feel like they've been more to make a point rather than to actually change the country, and generally fail in Parliament due to bureaucratic intransigence and malicious compliance on behalf of the authorities finding petty faults in the drafted legislations. And bear in mind, by the way, that in service conducted by the America's Barometer Organisation, support for same-sex marriage in El Salvador was 10% in 2010, and by 2017 it had improved to 19%. In addition, and something visitors to the country may want to be aware of, a survey by Elo Brazil in 2013 reported that over half the population, that's 62%, didn't accept the concept of LGBT in the first place, while a whopping 85% believed that, specifically relating to transgender, it should not only be illegal, but in fact be legal and acceptable to assault someone transgender purely because of their transgenderism. It's unsurprising to learn, then, that hate crimes are not only common, many hundreds over the last couple of decades, and they're only the ones that are reported, but even the act of reporting them is relatively pointless. 
A law in 2018 allowed people to at least file complaints when discriminated against, but what good's a complaint if all it does is reveal to people with power and guns who and what you are? As an aside, one of the aspects of Salvadorian culture is the dominance of machoism. It's a country with a chaotic level of toxic masculinity. Obviously, trans women bear the brunt of this, but society and culture is not amenable to gay men, lesbians or even trans men. Uh, the feeling is that men are men, women are women, both have their place and that place is as God intended. For instance, Aldo Peña is a trans man from San Salvador and he's not just had a lack of support in his transgender journey, having to source testosterone from the black market and injected himself without supposition, which even he identifies as irresponsible, but notes that it's the only way, but also having been abused and beaten by the police for no reason other than his transgenderism. And this also manifests in two other ways. Firstly, the man is very much on top, shall we say. A gay men get a better deal if they're the dominant partner, as it's a sign of virility, of, you know, we are men, we are in charge, we fuck, while effeminate bottoms are seen as no more than scum. I guess it's a power thing. Salvadorian society looks better on men who top, as that's what men are supposed to do, all assuming, of course, that they do the same to the woman in their life and that anything they do with other men isn't a precursor to a relationship with them. One assumes that their women are supposed to be happy with this too. The other issue is that families and neighbours are very unlikely to accept non cis het ally relationships. Aldo Peña lost the trust of his family when he transitioned into a man, and he was going into the dominant culture. Coming out as LGBT is seen as bringing shame onto the family, the community, and people who do so are quickly ostracised. It doesn't just affect the individuals involved either. Even having friends who are LGBTQIA plus leads to guilt by association. Even at times making people assume, oh, your friend is gay, so you must be too. Making it very hard for anyone in the rainbow spectrum to have a support network outside of other people in the queer community. And in a country like El Salvador, it's hard to escape from such cultural roadblocks, as even if you move away, you can't live as you want, because the new town, even if it's a large metropolis, will be populated by people with the same cultural values. One trans woman, Zashi Zuli del Cid Velazquez, fled her coastal village after coming out in 2014 and moved around to towns of different sizes to try to escape cultural hatred, but still ended up getting assassinated in 2021 in San Miguel, the third most populous city in the country. Obviously, it's not discussed in schools either, which means people go through most of their early life not able to be comfortable with who they are, which leads to LGBTQIA people underperforming at school and in work life. Indeed, a study of LGBTQIA plus people by D. Hernandez and M. Hernandez at the University of El Salvador in 1998 reported that 90% of respondents earned less than the minimum wage, 54% worked in the informal sector and 9% were unemployed. But back to William Hernandez and the Asociación Entre Amigos. It was established after the Civil War, which ended in 1992, originally to discuss the HIV epidemic that at the time was sweeping the country with absolutely no information or backstory and kind of naturally morphed into the leading, only, LGBT rights organisation in the country. They were even responsible for organising and creating the first Gay Pride March in El Salvador in 1997, and it's been conducted ever since, although you can imagine the reception it gets. To give you an idea on how bad LGBTQIA plus people are treated, 
The Human Rights Watch points out that in September 2020, a non-binary Salvadorian was granted asylum because, and I quote, their gender expression exposed them to police violence and daily abuse and degradation. The country which granted their asylum? It was that bastion of human rights and home to the safe right of gender expression, the United Kingdom. Good God. If the UK can be seen as a safe haven for NBs, can you imagine what El Salvador is like for people like me? It's a shame, really, because with my travel blogger hat on, it's exactly the place for someone like me. But I've sort kind of talked about this dichotomy before in my pods on travel influencers. I suppose I ought to vibe more positively now, so let's go to another continent, and a country I think many of you will know quite well. Australia. Land of the free. Terms and conditions apply. Firstly, some positive news. There was recently an election. I feel like there's always recently an election. And until the Brexit referendum, I had a vibe of, who's the Australian Prime Minister this week? But then things changed, and the UK government felt like it changed personnel more often than the fall, and made about as much sense. But this election was kind of a big deal, because the Labour no you, surprisingly, party formed their first government since 2013, four prime ministers ago, perhaps ushering in a more, ironically given the main opposition party's name, liberal social policy. The foreign minister, Penelope Wongin-Yen, is the first female openly queer-oriented federal parliamentarian, and having a lesbian in such a high position in government will definitely send a message of intent to the wider public. This compares with the previous regime. The outgoing prime minister, Scott Morrison, also known as Scotty from Marketing, a derisory epithet given due to his pre-political career as MDS Tourism Australia, basically he's otherwise a travel blogger's wet dream, is noted for certain anti-rainbow beliefs, including being an opponent of gay marriage and, in the recent election campaign, reacting negatively to the concept of trans athletes. There's a hope that his removal from office is a reflection of the vibe of, dude, it's 2022, can we not think it's 1922? The most widely known issue in recent years in Australia was that referendum on gay marriage, the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey, in 2017. Or, you know, marriage. The gender and sexual identity of the people involved really doesn't matter, doubly not to my aromantic self. All my engagements have been to cis women, though not all of them have been to het women. Parce que l'amour est universel. But that's by the by. Now, what's the point of subtweeting someone who doesn't even know if you're still alive? Anyway, obviously the whole debate and referendum itself is beyond the scope of this pod, but by all accounts it felt very divisive in society. Although pretty much every poll beforehand gave the Yes campaign not just the lead, but in fact the literal majority, the final result of 61.6% voting Yes merely reflected an average of those polls, there was always allowed no campaign, mainly from the Christian right, as you might expect. And there was a clamour for religious exemptions from people as high up in political life as former Prime Minister John Howard, while on the streets there was an increase in anti-LGBTQIA plus sentiment during the election campaign. And that said, Australia is one country where homophobia appears to be a minority rather than a default. 
The Pew Research Center's 2019 survey referred to earlier reported the percentage of people who believed homosexuality should be accepted by society at 81%. While lower than Canada and much of Northern and Western Europe, it's not exactly a low figure, and it's certainly one to give confidence for for gay travellers to visit Australia. The USA's figure was 72%. What's also interesting is that while worldwide there's a correlation between educational level and acceptance of LGBTQIA plus activities, even though there's a 10 percentage point gap between the least and most educated, that's still 77% versus 87%. 77% is also the percentage of people on the right of politics who agree with the statement. So they, even amongst segments of society traditionally homophobic, over three quarters of people surveyed believed that homosexuality should be accepted by society. The lowest reported score was amongst those who felt religion was an important aspect of their lives, where the acceptability score was only 61%. This is still high compared with Israel at 22% and South Korea at 13% amongst others. To the surprise of no one, the Ipsos survey, as mentioned earlier, reports that 16% of people surveyed in Australia identified themselves as wholly, mostly or equally attracted to the same sex, the second highest in the results after India. In addition, 9% stated they were only attracted to the same sex, the highest for that answer, just ahead of the Netherlands, which is 8%. Also, while only 55% of people surveyed said they knew someone who was homosexual, which, while higher than average, is still only mid-ranking, 18% of people said they knew someone transgender and 16% knew someone non-binary, both joint highest of the country surveyed alongside Canada. In addition, 21% of people said they'd attended a public event like Pride, second only to Spain. 34% said they visited a gay bar, second highest, just behind of all places, the UK. And is this where I raise a stereotype of the Aussies and the Brits not really caring where they go as long as there's decent booze? The Ipsos survey also relates that 62% of people believe same-sex couples should be able to marry legally. This is interestingly very close to the actual referendum result a couple of years earlier, while a further 14% support some kind of legal recognition that doesn't go as far as actual marriage rights. In the UK we have civil partnerships, which are marriages in all but name, but to be honest I don't believe there should be a difference. But, as stated earlier, I'm now unlikely to be the target market for marriage. Although I am open to offers... That's a subtweet. I'll leave it up to you to argue about whom that subtweet is aimed at. The one place the survey highlights a less than equality stance is in the area of transgender athletes, and I guess by inference, transgender rights as a whole. 27% of people surveyed supported the concept of transgender people competing as their identified gender rather than their birth gender. The global average of countries surveyed is 32%. Now, one issue with Australia is that it's a highly federalised state, similar in a way to the USA, and much legislation on personal identity is created at state and territory level, rather than at national level. This means, for instance, that while it's legally possible to change gender everywhere in Australia, a New South Wales and Queensland require you to go through gender reassignment surgery first. That said, the other states only removed this requirement in the last few years. It's an ongoing and recent process, so it would be nice to think that New South Wales and Queensland are just simply slightly behind the curve, especially since the largest city in New South Wales is Sydney, and everyone knows about the queer scene there. Queensland is less of a surprise. That's also a subtweet. The other issue I've been advised about in Australia in the area of LGBTQA plus issues, is the Safe Schools Coalition Australia. 
This is a programme of eight lessons, complete with video, of an LGBTQIA plus teenager talking about their experiences and journey, which then encourages discussion in the classroom afterwards. The programme launched in the state of Victoria in 2010 before being rolled out nationally a few years later. It aimed to provide a methodology and framework to help LGBTQIA plus teenagers cope with their discovery of their identities and to try and encourage a wider vibe of tolerance and acceptance. Obviously, this went down about as well as you can imagine with the traditional right, with comments from politicians, church figures and columnists talking about grooming and sexualisation, as well as thoughts that teenagers shouldn't be learning about this kind of thing anyway. The Prime Minister that week, Malcolm Turnbull, not the most forward-thinking of people, at first didn't really seem to commit one way or the other on the programme, leading to a bit of hesitancy amongst authorities about what they should do with it or whether they should go forward with it, although he obviously later reverted to type and fell on the side of criticism. Or what didn't help either was a coordinated attack on the programme's co-founder, Ros Ward, who ended up having to resign in 2016 from a role she had in helping out the Victorian government because of a social media post where she was deemed to have criticised the Australian flag for being racist and suggesting that it be replaced by the red flag. In 2016 also, the government launched a review of the programme, the Loudoun Review, but surprisingly, this didn't find any of the issues the government may have been hoping for. Rather, they found the resources and concept were appropriate and suggested criticisms of the programme were overstated and mostly pushed by external lobbyists with their own agenda. Nevertheless, not long after this, the government cancelled federal funding for the programme and several of the states, including New South Wales and Queensland, you perhaps might not be surprised by, withdrew from it, creating their own less, shall we say, intense programmes of their own. The programme is still funded at a federal level by the governments of Victoria, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory, and some schools in one or two of the other states and territories are part of it. And both sides of the dispute are reported to have resorted to violence, similar to that seen later in the marriage referendum. Indeed, in the early days of campaigning in the referendum, there were people who sought to conflate the two issues, mainly on the no camp, who suggested the LGBTQIA plus education would be compulsory if the marriage referendum passed. I don't see this as a bad thing, but then I'm not a religious pastor in Queensland. For good reason. But anyway, it seems that even in Australia, feelings run high around the topic of queer culture. So what have we learnt in this episode? I think the biggest takeout is that LGBTQIA plus rights are under threat everywhere and few countries are truly welcoming to us rainbow people. And this is important to remember, certainly for people like me and for many of you. We concentrate so much on our own countries and our own cultures that we don't often know what's happening elsewhere in the world. It's one thing fighting for queer rights in our own countries, but even if we manage to achieve them here, we must remember the fight isn't over until we're free everywhere. For every Peter Tatchell, there's a corresponding William Hernandez. For every Miss Major, there's a corresponding Angel Maxine. We are not safe until we are all safe. Oh, and follow at One Love on Twitter. He's also quite funny. Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time for another trip beyond, beyond the, the brochure. brochure. Although given that I'm about to go on holiday for a week and a half, it's likely that episode will be on the delights of road tripping around Ireland with an ex-girlfriend. I've half written another podcast on beer, but that'll wait for another fortnight. It's already a month late. Ah, I love the sound of deadlines as they whoosh by, as Douglas Adams once said. Hashtag relatable. Until then, in the words of Ghanaian trans photographer Vabene Elikem Fiatsi, we are all the same. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, Bonus, by Kai Angel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye.